All right. So this is Halloween week. And as some of you know, horror movies are something that I really, really enjoy. I posted a blog last week talking about it, but I really, really love horror movies. And especially old horror books that have, you know, some of those old kind of gothic style horror novels, novellas, stories, I really, really enjoy. And I think some of it comes down to the fact that the horror genre, when well done, creates an atmosphere that is really just right for exploring deep set themes. And a lot of times deep set religious themes. Now, I don't think it's an accident that some of my favorite horror authors are also deeply religious people. I think these two can, can walk together in very, very interesting ways. Now, one of my absolute favorite horror authors is Edgar Allan Poe. Now, I know there's a bit of a learning curve you have to get over when, you know, approaching Poe. You can tell this was someone who was paid by the word because oftentimes his descriptions, his kind of setups can be excessively wordy and use words that are really unfamiliar. He uses a lot of weird vocabulary and not just weird for us because we're kind of so far removed from it, but also weird for the time period. You know, some of his contemporaries noted his peculiar vocabulary. But if you can get past some of that, there are really some extremely powerful, impactful, and meaningful stories that Poe tells that really touch upon some poignant, deep, and needed themes. And so this morning, what I thought we would do is examine one of these stories and just see what biblical elements are maybe in it or what biblical contrast we can find and how what that can show or reveal to us. Now, when trying to decide what Poe short, short story to do, it seemed almost appropriate in a kind of a weird way with everything that's going on that we should maybe look at the story, The Mask of the Red Death. So I'll kind of give a quick summary of the story. We'll, I'll read a couple passages from it and then we'll kind of bring it into light with the biblical text. So, Mask of the Red Death. Our story opens in some unknown country. Now, this country is in the throes of a devastating plague, simply known as the Red Death. Now, despite this, the leader of this unknown country, Prince Prospero, really isn't worried. In fact, we read that Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and stageless. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court. And with these, he retired into the deep seclusion of one of his castrated abbeys. All right, so I feel like naming this person Prince Prospero really just tells you everything you need to know about him from the very beginning, right? He's prosperous, but his prosperity is really all he cares about. His pride is abundantly clear in this kind of opening paragraph here. He really kind of seems to think he can outsmart death. That if he holds himself up in a church, no less, which is something we'll get back to, but if he holds himself up, that death will somehow spare him. He tries to protect only himself and a couple of his closest friends that he deems worthy of protection. All of this while paying no attention to his country. He simply ignores everything that's going on in the outside world. 
He just locks himself up and pretends it's not happening. Well, after being secluded for six months or so, Prospero starts to go a little stir-crazy. Something I think some of us can potentially relate to right now. So he decides he is going to have a masquerade ball. And he really, really goes all out for this party. This is just a ridiculous party. Now the area in which this party is happening is a series of interconnected rooms. And the prince decorates each room with a specific color. So for example, there is an orange room. Carpets are orange, the drapes are orange, the furniture, all the stained glass, everything in it's orange. There's a blue room, a black room, a red room, and so on and so on. So he, he is, loves to decorate. And the party is magnificent. People are having the time of their lives. They're dancing, they're just having a great, great time. Until the weirdly super creepy clock over in the corner strikes midnight. Once that happens, we read the following. And thus too, it happened. Perhaps that before the last echo of the last chime had utterly sank into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure to which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumor of this new presence, having spread itself whisperingly around, there arose at length from the whole company a buzz, or a murmur, expressive of the disproportionation and surprise, and then finally, of terror, of horror, and of disgust. So no one knows who this masked person is, which is kind of odd, right? Because remember, this is a group of people that have been locked together, sequestered together, in this abbey for the past six months. So the appearance of someone they don't know is kind of a big deal, right? Poe goes on to describe this new arrival and describe their costume as so lifelike that the people were genuinely scared. And they're scared because this person seems to be dressed as the personification of the Red Death, the very thing that the people are hiding from very thing that is destroying the outside country. The very thing that the people are trying to pretend doesn't exist. Well, as you can imagine, the prince really isn't happy about this. We read that when the eyes of the Prince Prospero fell upon the spectral image, which, with a slow and solemn movement, as if for more fully to sustain its role, stalked to and fro among the waltzers. So when Prince Prosper had seen this, he, he was seen to be overconvulsed, and in the moment, with a strong shudder, either of terror or distaste, but in the next, his brow ridged with rage. Who dares, he demanded hoarsely of the courtiers who stood near him, who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? Seize him and unmask him, that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements. All right, that, that might be an overreaction, but we're just going to kind of move on from there. <clears throat> so the prince sees this person, gets enraged, gets angered, and tells them to seize him because we're going to kill him. But 
Despite the prince's orders, no one moves. This figure is too terrifying. No one wants to get near it. Well, as you can imagine, Prospero's anger grows with being ignored and really being shown up by this mystery figure. So Prospero decides he's dealing with this himself. He grabs a knife and he charges at the new arrival. But just as he approaches, the figure turns around to face him. And we read, there was a sharp cry and the dagger dropped upon the gleaming sable carpet, upon which, instantly afterwards, fell prostrate in death, the Prince Prospero. All right, so the, the crowd is understandably shocked, right? This figure seemingly just killed the prince by looking at him. Well, in a wave of anger, the crowd rushes in to attack the figure. They want to tear the mask off because they, they want to know who this person is. But they're even more shocked when they actually succeed in taking this character's mask off because they find there's nothing underneath it. This figure has no tangible form at all. And the story concludes with the realization that the figure was not someone dressed as the Red Death, but was actually death. So the short story concludes with this paragraph. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come in like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood-begooed halls of their revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gaiety, and the flames of the tripods expired, and darkness and decay and the Red Death held a limitable domain over all. Okay, how does this relate to the Bible at all? Right? I mean, this seems even a little extreme for even some of the more out there biblical passages. I mean, doesn't it? Well, did anyone notice how the appearance of the figure was described in that last paragraph? Did anyone catch it? figure was described as a thief in the night. Now, is this phrase familiar to anyone? It might be. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, 1 Thessalonians is a letter written to the church of Thessalonica. And here in this section, they're talking about this coming day of the Lord. And so I'm going to start reading at the very beginning of chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves know very well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and there is no escape. But you, beloved, are not in darkness, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of light and children of the day, for we are not of the night and of the darkness. So let us not fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who are drunk, get drunk at night. 
but since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So here, the day of the Lord is described as a thief in the night. I think this begs the question of what is the day of the Lord? Well, in short, it is that coming time when God will return and judge us. Some will be rewarded and others will be condemned. It's some, you know, some people refer to it as Armageddon, Judgment Day, you know, those, those kind of big words. But ultimately, it is the day, the very reason that Jesus came to earth, right? Jesus died and rose again so that on that day, we could be rewarded. We would not have to be condemned because of the blood of Christ. Now, there are some decent parallels between the day of the Lord and the Red Death, right? Both are seen as this kind of coming judgment. Both could potentially bring death. And both are inescapable. But I think there's an important distinction to make here. Notice how our passage tells us how to prepare for the day of the Lord. This is verse 6. So then let us not fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who are drunk, get drunk at night. We are to stay awake and remain sober, as opposed to those who sleep and get drunk. Now, I don't believe that our author is limiting this kind of interpretation to actually sleeping and drinking. I don't think our author is saying we should never sleep or we should never drink. I think that'd be too narrow or too limiting of a view on this text. But if we step back and look at it from a larger perspective, what do sleeping and drinking do? Well, they either cause us to completely ignore a situation because we're sleeping, so we can't be cognizant of it, or they impair our judgment of a situation. So in what ways could our judgment become clouded or impaired when it comes to thinking about the day of the Lord, when it comes to thinking about judgment? I think one of the biggest vices that impairs our judgment is actually our own pride. We often think that we can outsmart, outwit, or even just outmuscle God and somehow get out of judgment. Think about what Prospero did. How well did this mindset work for the prince? Well, despite all of his resources, all of his power, he couldn't escape judgment. He was working under the false assumption that he could control everything. He had always controlled everything in his life, so why would this be any different? But he couldn't. Despite having everything laid out before him, he couldn't control judgment and he couldn't control death. I think another area where pride can cloud our judgment is in the arena of religious superiority. Think about the Pharisees back in Jesus' day. This was the group that probably butted heads with Jesus more than anyone. Now, why do we think that is? Well, I personally think that part of it came from this group getting called out by Jesus a lot. I mean, think about it. This was a group 
that really basically weaponized faith. For this group, serving God became a way of separation and of control. Giving was done not out of love, not out of care for the other, but out of a way to elevate one's status. There was the idea that if I follow enough rules and I appear religious enough and I appear better than everyone else around me, then God will think I'm better than everyone else around me and will really have no choice but to reward me. So I think this is really comes down to trying to control God. Now, notice where the prince chose to hole up in our story. Where did Prospero decide to make kind of his stand, to make his sequesterment? In an abbey, in a church. There was the thought process that, well, nothing bad could happen to me, right? I'm in a church. God will surely protect me, will surely spare me because of where I'm located. God wouldn't dare come into a church to claim judgment, right? Once again, this is someone trying to control God. Prospero is trying to think he's smarter than God. Thinks he's maybe found a loophole. Ah, I'll just go to a church. I've tricked God. That doesn't work out well for the Pharisees, doesn't work out well for Prospero. So it seems clear that pride is something we should desperately try to avoid, right? So what, what are we to do? I mean, we know what we're supposed to try to avoid, but sometimes it's more helpful to know what we're actually supposed to do. Well, look at verse 8. Put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, this is imagery sometimes called the armor of God. And this is an image that pops up in a few places throughout the biblical text, both Old and New Testament. But notice what elements are present here. What are they? It's faith, love, and hope. Now, what I think is so amazing and interesting about these three paired together is that, for the most part, they're all passive from our end. We really do nothing to earn them. So let's start with faith. Faith is simply just a realization that Christ died for us, and so that we do not have to suffer the judgment side of the coming day of the Lord. That's passive. That's, that's been given to us. That faith is something we just have to realize. Love, of course, does have an active side. We can, we can show and reflect love. But that has to all start with us receiving God's love. We can't ever hope to really reflect God's love, the active side of love, if we can't just merely accept God's love, if we can't merely open ourselves up to receive love. And then hope, and specifically the hope of salvation. When we realize that Christ a, loved us and we have faith in the power of his blood, then this hope of salvation really becomes a reality for us. This hope is something that bubbles up and comes spilling out of us. 
Now, none of these three things can be earned or achieved through our own merit, through our own prowess, or through our own power. We can't find a loophole, outwit, outsmart God to earn any of these. They're freely given from a God who loves us. So how does what Prince Prospero does, how Prince Prospero's reaction compare to what Thessalonians tells us? Well, Prospero thought that he could skirt judgment. Prospero fled out of a sense of self-preservation and extreme fear. And Prospero was prideful. Prospero thought he could outsmart and force the hand of God. And this ultimately left Prospero to nothing but darkness and decay. But we have the hope of the, and the love of the blood of Christ. And that provides us the hope of salvation. Therefore, we don't have to flee or fear because Christ stands before us. We don't have to be afraid of the coming judgment because Christ has already bore it for us. We know that our day of judgment will be a day that leads to wonderful light and glory. So we don't have to flee out of self-preservation or of fear. We can have confidence. We can have faith and hope that the day of the Lord, the coming judgment, will end with us standing with Christ, who, after all, holds illimitable dominion over all. Join me as we pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you that you are such a powerful yet compassionate God, that you are a God who is infinitely just and will judge everyone, but you're infinitely merciful and so have given us a way to avoid condemnation at this judgment. You've given us the blood of Christ, which is this precious free gift for us to walk into fellowship with you. And Lord, we cannot thank you enough for that amazing gift, Lord. And so Lord, we just ask that you would continue to open up our hearts, continue to soften our minds and our souls, Lord, that we could just be receptive and accept this amazing gift, Lord. And Lord, we just ask that as we go throughout this week, Lord, that you would follow us, that you would continue to comfort us and bless us. And please bring us safely back here next week. In your precious name we pray. Amen.